0: The term Aristotle is used to represent a family of affiliates, which is comprised of Aristotle Capital Management, Aristotle Capital Boston, Aristotle Credit Partners, Aristotle Atlantic Partners, and Aristotle Pacific Capital, which collectively operate under a unified platform known as Aristotle. Each firm is an independent investment advisor registered under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, as amended. Welcome to The Power of Patience, Aristotle's podcast, where you share our views on topics actively explored by our investment teams and across the organization. I'm Alex Warren, product specialist at Aristotle, and I'll be your host today. Coming up on today's episode, we'll be speaking with Dominic Nolan, CEO of Aristotle Pacific Capital. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and share it on LinkedIn to help us spread the word. Today on the show, we'll discuss the introduction of Aristotle Pacific Capital to the Aristotle family. What makes Aristotle Pacific Capital unique? Inflation and Federal Reserve policy and opportunities today for fixed income investors. Without further ado, let's get started. Dominic, thank you so much for speaking with me today. To lead off the discussion, can you introduce yourself and provide a brief overview of Aristotle Pacific Capital? Happy to. Dominic
1: Nolan, CEO of Aristotle Pacific Capital. Formerly Pacific Asset Management, joined the firm in 2008, about a month before Lehman Brothers. So it was a bit of dubious timing on our side and been with the firm since. We started with about a billion in traditional credit and at the time of acquisition, a little over $20 billion. As it relates to the origin of Aristotle, Pacific Capital really starts with Pacific Asset Management. I would say even before that, with Pacific Life and their relationship with PIMCO, Pacific Life was the parent company of that very large firm for a number of years. In the late 90s, it was sold to Allianz, and there was ownership still retained by Pacific Life, and essentially that was called away. Knowing that was taking place, there was a group from the general account of Pacific Life that approached the parent company and said, we'd like to start an asset manager with a focus on corporate credit, bottom-up corporate credit. Understanding that there was no longer an active ownership stake in PIMCO anymore, granted that. And Pacific Asset Management was born in January of 2007. So as they built out the team, I believe I was number 10 or so. There was half a dozen from the general account and then the rest external hires. And
0: again, joined in mid-2008. Absolutely. You touched on the recent acquisition from Pacific Asset Management. What was the genesis of the acquisition? We had been in existence now for good 14, 15 years and grown
1: from a billion to over 20 billion. One of the catalysts for the sale was an operating agreement between Pacific Asset Management and Pacific Life coming to an end. The timing of that was that we, would, we needed to reevaluate that operating agreement. So that's one. Two, at a high level, the firm had reached scale, I think, within asset management. That's a very difficult thing to do, but with $20 billion, the momentum of the business was quite strong. We had hit $10 billion in 2018 and had doubled within two to three years. So again, a high growth rate there. Three, Pacific Life, was evaluating their businesses and determined they wanted to remain focused on balance sheet-centric businesses. And then when you incorporate that our business model, even though we're financial services, is really slightly different mm-hmm. than the insurance business model, you add all that together, again, timing of the agreement, wanting to focus on balance sheet centric businesses, us reaching scale. It just
0: led to a decision that they wanted to find us a new partner. That makes sense. Now, in your opinion, how is the cultural fit and what do the two organizations bring to the table? We went through this
1: process really for most of 2022. And as it relates to things that our team and I wanted was, first and foremost, we wanted to keep the team together. So finding a partner that was willing to do that was paramount. Number two, we wanted to find a partner that could help us grow. It's easy to say, doesn't everyone want to help you grow? There were entities we were speaking with where we were the second or third fixed income team. Mm. And I think they just wanted to increase assets, but not really help us grow. Gotcha. And then the third element is we wanted to maintain our owner-operator mentality. Having the proverbial skin in the game was important to us when we struck our deal in the mid-2010s with Pacific Life. We wanted to maintain that. And it was pretty evident... I would say early in the process that that was Aristotle's operating model. You know, Certainly welcoming the team, the ability to help us grow, and that owner-operator construct was exactly what we were looking for. And to add to that, then you start to dig in to the values of the organization and how they operated. And I felt Aristotle was very like-minded. They understood it is a people business, not a balance sheet business. And the track record of success with senior management stood out to us. On top of being like-minded, the investment disciplines were very complementary, and distribution had little to no overlap, in my opinion. And then all of that wrapped in an experience of eight years of knowing senior management of Aristotle. It worked well, and it again, it got to be where there was really only one clear choice, in
0: my opinion. Those are important considerations, and it makes sense. For the benefit of the listeners, we're actually in the same building, so it, uh, it's a bit of a hand-in-glove <laughs> relationship right there. Yes. Now, I understand Aristotle Pacific Capital has a deep bench of credit investors. Can you provide some background on your investment team?
1: As alluded earlier in our discussion, we were founded in 2007. The focus there was corporate credit and the dis- the investment disciplines were around investment grade credit, high yield bonds, floating rate loans. Those disciplines anchor our business today. So back in 2007, when we had about a billion, that's what we invested in. Fast forward 15 years. Those are the areas we invest in today. Now we have added structured credit or CLOs on top of those disciplines, but the underlying collateral of that business line are floating rate loans. So I'd say 99 plus percent of our business is focused on corporate credit. Now that element, as far as how we invest, first and foremost, the portfolio managers make the decisions on their respective strategies. In other words, there is not a firm-wide view on macroeconomics, risk tolerance, sector preferences. That is done at a portfolio management level. At the same time, our portfolio managers, you know, for each strategy, we have more than one portfolio manager. And in our view, you know, a well-executed team would we cannot run any, any individual. That that's our view. And that has been in place since the beginning. Another element is from an analyst standpoint, a research standpoint, they are, they really cover an industry. So it's not and I'd say many firms in our industry will separate the investment grade team and the leverage finance mm-hmm. team. The leverage finance is high yield and floating rate loans. Our structure is that our retail analyst is looking at the investment grade companies all the way through. And the mm-hmm. thesis there is if you're gonna if you're gonna research retail, you best to know what Walmart's doing in retail as you dig deeper and get to understand that marketplace. Yeah. So we've incorporated that since our beginning. So when you look through it's a focus on liquid credit. The portfolio manager is really responsible for their strategy. There isn't a firm-wide macro view or preference Mm -hmm. of sectors. And our research structure is done on an industry level. And
0: that's how we've approached investing in credit since the beginning. That's fascinating. I know a uh, a top-down view is something that you see in many fixed-income shops. So that leads well into my next question. What do you believe makes the firm unique? We have been
1: focused on an area of the market that I think a lot of other firms don't focus on. That was something that we discovered over the past year or two. And, and just to give you a sense of that, when you're a really large fixed income manager, your predominant benchmark is the Bloomberg US Aggregate Index. And that's the bellwether index for most investors. The breakdown of that index, in high level, it's about a third US Treasuries, mm. it's about a third mortgage backed securities. A 25% corporate credit, and the rest is you know, asset-backed securities and maybe some sovereign debt. When Fannie and Freddie were taken into conservatorship post-crisis, that meant the benchmark was going to be 60 to 70% quasi-government or government, U.S. government-backed securities. Mm-hmm. And as a large fixed-income job, if that's your benchmark, that means getting that call right on top-down macro duration, yeah. et cetera, is going to drive performance. Mm-hmm. Our focus has been on the 25% of the bench bar, that investment grade corporate. And then with that, you also have high yield and leverage loans. Now, when you go below investment grade, that's a marketplace that has developed uniquely since the crisis and that the, the the bank constraints post-crisis and the regulations, Dodd-Frank, et cetera, a lot of lending had changed or the, the face of lending had changed. And the private markets have become quite prevalent for small and mid-sized corporations. Meanwhile, we stuck to the liquid part mm-hmm. of the leverage finance market. So as it relates to the firm, we're actually focused on the third largest sector in the investment grade world. And we're focused on the most liquid sector in the below investment grade world. Mm-hmm. And that's the air, space we play in the area we've been in for 15 years as a large firm. We are going to be different because of our focus on liquid credit relative to a small firm. A lot of small firms have come about with their focus on private credit. The economics tend to be a little, little heavier to them. The spreads are higher. Meanwhile, we were plugging away in liquid markets. So fast forward, 20 billion in assets, what we found is very few firms have maintained that focus. Mm -hmm. I think uh, there have been pressures, whether it be business or on the investment side to deviate. And that's something that we have remained, I think, well positioned for, because now we're, again, we have some scale, so we're not too small, but we're not a battleship. Mm -hmm. We are still able to move
0: pretty quick. I think your comment about the Bloomberg aggregate is fascinating. I didn't appreciate how little credit was actually in the index itself. So that's a fascinating point to take away. Love to shift gears and get your thoughts about markets. Inflation and federal reserve policy have recently presented challenges for fixed income investors. What are your thoughts on the battle against inflation?
1: Well, it's been a brutal journey getting here. And just some perspective, last year, the index was down 12 13% around there. Up until last year, the worst year ever was 94% when it was down about 3%. Oh, wow. So down last year, four times the worst year ever. However, there's a much different rate environment now. Mm -hmm. So people do get paid to be in investment-grade assets or even paid to be in short-term assets or cash. As it relates to the battle against inflation, obviously, the core of this was one, the Federal Reserve being very aggressive in raising rates, but two, the money that was printed during COVID. So from the standpoint of where it sits right now, as we record, the Fed futures are anticipating one more rate hike in May and actually forecasting a cut in December. Wow. So the expectation is the Fed will be cutting before the end of the year. Now, that is different than what you're hearing out of the Fed. Most of the rhetoric coming through is that the Fed intends to leave rates where they are. And the market has been in and out of belief as relates to what the Fed will do. And there are many market participants that believe inflation is going to decelerate at a greater pace than what the Fed's anticipating. The economy is going to slow down at a greater rate than the Fed's anticipating. So thus, the Fed will be quasi forced to cut by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. There's a set. There's certainly a camp of investors that believe that. And then there's a camp of investors that believe inflation is going to be sticky. The Fed is, you know, uber determined to to stick to their guns and they are going to leave rates where they are. We'll see. That's a bit dynamic. Personally, I think the economy is going to slow down more than what the Fed believes. Mm. However, where I have pause on the cut is the Fed continues to anchor to a 2% long-term inflation mark. That's the same level they anchored to prior to COVID. To me, there should be, I think, uh, an adjustment to reflect all the M2, all the money supply that went into the system. Maybe the long-term rate should go from two to two and a half or three. I don't know. It'll take a few years to really get a sense of what should the long-term rate be. However, the Fed has not made that adjustment. Mm -hmm. So thus, it leads me to believe that they're going to stick to their guns, uh, right or wrong, and leave rates where they are and not cut. Mm -hmm. However, The new information, and by new, I mean the past 60 days, are the banking issues. We have the second and third largest failure in our banking history. And as a result, most banks up and down the size, so from money center banks to super regionals, regionals, community banks, credit unions, et cetera, I would expect those banks to begin tightening their lending standards, which that tightens monetary policy as Mm -hmm. well. So if you incorporate that and fast forward six to nine months, I believe the economy will slow down. I believe the job market will get worse is that enough for the Fed to cut?
0: Right now, it doesn't seem like it, but it sure, sure would surprise
1: me if it got to
0: that point. Broadly speaking, fear and volatility were hallmarks of 2022. Do you think fixed income investors have done a good job in 2023 with discounting the headlines? In general, I do. And the reason I say that is spreads have held in and
1: rates Rates are moving because the economy is very difficult to underwrite right now. The recession element has been debated for the past year, and we have not gone into recession. First quarter print on GDP was around 1%. So technically, the economy is holding in the job market has been very resilient. So you've seen positive returns from the fixed income standpoint. So in general, I'd say they have. Fear and volatility to me from 22, which is certainly the case, I think has been replaced
0: with just a tremendous amount of uncertainty on the banking situation Mm -hmm. and the economic situation. Given those uncertainties, are there any areas of the market that give you pause right now? For me, it's really the private markets. And when you think about the repricing of
1: assets, the thing about liquid assets is they're reflected in their risk premia daily. And when you had tightening cycle, Last year, the first thing to reprice were liquid assets. The equity markets repriced, the fixed income markets repriced. Those are liquid. Then you start to get into semi-liquid assets, things like office, retail, mm-hmm. single family. There's a lot of uncertainty in single family. I think the I think there's a lot of certainty that there's struggles struggles happening in the office uh, commercial commercial property, in particular with office and retail. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uncertainty on on single family and multifamily. But that's also going through the repricing element we haven't quite seen the full repricing on private markets private markets are not transparent and a lot of times they'll mark the same value because no one has traded out of it Mm -hmm. and and essentially if you think about you know what's the value of your house well you arbitrarily assign a number but you really don't know unless you sell on liquor markets things are selling every day so you have that transparency in private markets, I think there's a lot of price discovery going on, and I don't believe that's been not certainly not fully reflected. I don't I don't
0: believe it's I think there's more to go on the private side. So that that gives me pause. That that's side. fascinating. yeah, And that's uh, certainly a food for thought. It's been a great conversation and we have time for one final question. What is your outlook for corporate credit over the next few years? And where do you see opportunities? I'm very much constructive on corporate credit a few reasons.
1: One. There was a repricing. Investment bonds year, year and a half ago were yielding two percent. Now they're yielding five plus percent. High yield was yielding sub-five percent. Now it's yielding eight to nine percent. Floating rate loans with the Fed being aggressive has discount margins or or rate you know yields of around nine to ten percent. So from an investor standpoint, I feel the compensation you're getting for that risk is substantially higher today. So that's one. Two. When you look through to implied default rates versus forecasted rates, the markets are already pricing in defaults that are really higher than what Moody's and S&P is forecasting. That doesn't mean we won't get there, but just it's already discounting that in. Mm -hmm. So you you have that element. And then just when you look through the coupons, those coupons offer significant protection against capital loss. As relates to credit, relative to other asset class, private assets to me haven't been repriced fully. Meanwhile, you have tightening conditions in an economy that's slowing down. From an equity standpoint, I think that's a lot of pressure on the economy and thus equities, whereas at least now in corporate credit, you have coupons to help offset that volatility. So I'm, I'm very much in the camp that structurally, corporate credit, I think, is uh, feels pretty good after a decade plus of kind of, being, kind of being secondary to equity returns and private market returns.
0: So I, I feel the time is, is quite nice right now for corporate credit a good setup in a challenging environment. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Dominic, for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed it and learned more about Aristotle. Thank you for listening to The Power of Patience. To learn more about Aristotle, please visit www.aristotlecap.com or follow the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And on behalf of Aristotle, this is Alex Warren, and thank you for listening.